0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Hearsay podcast. My guest today is my good mate Josh Pike. Uh, It's always a pleasure to talk with Josh and he has many awesome stories to tell about being a hard-working musician in Australia, amongst other things of course, and he's about to go out on tour to promote his Best Off album, so go check him out, I'm sure it'll be a real treat. Josh's strange show story is illustrated by my dear friend Joseph Jensen. Sometimes these drawings have not much to do with the story, which is fine because I always say the artist should get 100% creative freedom to draw the audio I send however they interpret it. But in this case, Joe has really nailed the narrative in cartoon form. I really love it. Uh, you can check out more of Joe's drawings at joseph.jensen on Instagram. Please go and rate the podcast in iTunes if you have time. I would really appreciate it. Here we go. Here's a podcast number 19, Josh Pike. Josh. Hi there. Hey, that sounded like the beginning of a Dinosaur Junior song.
1: Oh, I like Dinosaur Junior. <laughs> you know what's funny? One of my kids loves Dinosaur Junior. Archer really? lo- loves Dinosaur Junior. And Orky hates Dinosaur Junior. Every, every time, <laughs> and he, But he has a really great ear for Dinosaur Junior. So every time he hears Dinosaur Junior, he's like, is this Dinosaur Junior? Turn it off. It's really weird. <laughs>
0: What song does he hate? It's just the Marshall Stack sound.
1: No, I think it's um, I think it's the.
0: And now, now
1: That kind of voice. Yeah,
0: fair enough. I mean, it's a bit of a grower.
1: Well, he's like Augie's way more into Five Seconds of Summer, whereas Arch is just oh. he- heaps into Dinosaur Jr. and Pavement and stuff. It's great.
0: Wow, that sounds like my kind of music taste. Yeah,
1: same. Well, same here. It's just different horses for different courses.
0: Do you know my first? Ever show without my parents was Dinosaur Junior.
1: Oh wow, that's cool.
0: Yeah, at Festival Hall, supported by Magic Dirt and the Melnicks. Oh wow! And I was obsessed with the Melnicks at the time, that's and cool. I was so stoked I got to see them in a massive venue.
1: My my first gig without any parents was Motley Crue. Really? Yeah, at the Entertainment Center.
0: Did they have like crazy theatrics?
1: Yeah, this was, it was the tour for the um, with the revolving drum cage.
0: amazing and
1: it was sick it was so good it was me and my friend Dan (coughs) and his mum dropped us off at the entrance to the entertainment center and maybe she actually in retrospect I think she just kind of like sat in the car for an hour and a half um and then because we were like 11 and we went in and watched uh Motley Crue and then came out and it was just absolutely mind-blowing it was amazing amazing Mm. have
0: you seen that video uh that came out like a couple of years ago whatever about tommy being stuck on that roller coaster the drum roller coaster (laughs) no (laughs) he had this crazy like like loop roller coaster with a drum kit that he was like so he went upside down and (laughs) he got stuck in the middle of it (sighs) and that yeah it was pretty funny I'll send, you, I'll send you the link. Yeah, send me a link. I feel like maybe my first show was Salt and Pepper and then straight after Dinosaur Jr.
1: So you lied. So you said Dinosaur Jr. because you thought that was cool. Well, cooler. it was. <laughs>
0: no, it was really close. I think it was like maybe even the same year. And it was the boat. It was, yeah, it was my first show without my parents and then my first show, like being a cool kid yeah. wearing flannels. <laughs> yeah.
1: My, my first one was. Motley Crue, and my second one without parents was um, Metallica. Uh, and yours then, are so cool. Yeah, m- well I'm you know, I'm a cool I'm a cool guy. So <laughs> I've I'm, always said that. Yeah, that's actually something that's one of the first things you said <laughs> to me. I remember when we first met. You're like, You're a cool guy. No, um but then it was like all those amazing, do you remember all those amazing double bills like Helmet and the Beastie Boys and Suicide yeah. of Tendencies and Alice in Chains and That's right. Oh my god, that was so good. There was a real era of um like package package shows for a while wasn't there it was it was yeah, excellent
0: i think i was a little bit too young for that stuff i think uh-huh. but my, my <laughs> brother went to some of them <laughs> and i was really jealous
1: <laughs> yeah your brother's a cool guy too so you know
0: <laughs> do you remember the first time we met
1: yes i do it was at a festival in tasmania it was probably about eight years ago and um was that the first time that you think? I don't think so. <laughs>
0: I actually think the really? first time we met was on the Big Day Out tour. With when you, I'm pretty sure. I think that we met um, because Regurgitator had played, and oh. they all left for the day. And then I didn't have any mates to hang out with, and I just came and hung out with you for a while.
1: Oh, and then so what was the Tasmanian Festival? Was that like a was that a yeah, reunion? Maybe
0: we were already mates then.
1: Oh, I don't remember this first time at Big Day Out.
0: I just remember talking to you because um, we were both talking about maybe just having met Tom Morello or something. Oh, that's and we, right. And we were like, oh, he's a really nice guy, yeah. Was that,
1: like, was that when um, a, a joint got passed around and it went like Zach Della and then me? And I was just like, what the fuck just happened? Were you there? Probably.
0: I don't think I was there then, but that d- sounds pretty I fun. do remember
1: that big day out. I do remember that big day out. And that was when I like met, first met Quan as well from Regurgitator. Yeah. And yeah. I was a huge fan. And and it had been a big night if, you know, I'd consumed a lot of consumables. And I just remember like <laughs> just punishing Quan just like t- talking <laughs> about how much I loved Regurgitator. And, and then getting really abstract and random and saying like how my wife was vietnamese and so like if we have kids they'll be half vietnamese like him and oh
0: yeah i do and i was just that. i was just <laughs>
1: off on i was just off on the off on tangent and he was like going yeah cool mate cool mate cuz he doesn't drink or anything does he so he was just no. like yeah so he would have just been stony cold sober just going like yeah great and i just couldn't sh- i couldn't shut the fuck up i really wanted to In my <laughs> mind i was like just shut up stop talking but i couldn't
0: <laughs> i love that
1: and then i remember on my honeymoon, we came and saw you guys play in Japan. That's
0: right, yeah. And
1: um, and again, like I saw, I just couldn't talk to Quan. I was just like, uh, uh, "Hey, okay, yeah. this is my this is my wife. She's the the Vietnamese one that I was telling you about." Uh.
0: I, that's funny because he's um he's really nice.
1: I know, I know. I don't know. I don't know what it is.
0: I think it's maybe just that that like hero worship. You know, if you've liked someone a really long time and. I wonder, I mean, a lot of people probably get that with you, you know, that probably act like total weirdos and you don't even really notice. <laughs> May, I
1: don't know, maybe. But I do, I, with, because I'd seen, Raghurj Sato were a huge band for me and I'd seen them so many times and had so many kind of seminal gig experiences to the Gurgeon And so when I met him, it was just, yeah, it was it was, it was was that thing. It was like meeting a hero, which is nice.
0: What about, do you get that with Ben Eli too?
1: Um. No, funnily enough, I don't know why. Ben's
0: really approachable too. He's like the nicest man on the planet. Well, maybe that. Maybe that's <laughs> why
1: as well. Because I did. I have met him, and he was always super, super nice. Yeah. So maybe it was like the fact that Quan had always seemed slightly mysterious and slightly evil. That you know, even though I know he's not.
0: Yeah, I think he like he can come off that way for sure. Like really mysterious, and and you never quite know what what he's thinking. <laughs> hey, I want to talk to you a bit about. Uh, when you started getting into music and stuff, and you know, I'm sure you've talked about this a million times, but do you remember a time when you know you first started listening to music, and and when you first started thinking you might want to play guitar?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it was it wasn't about playing guitar so much as uh, for, first and foremost, I always wanted to be a singer, and right. um, and but it was from super early on, you know, like I because. My parents had a really good record collection, and so I'd go in and listen to music. Um, we had like we had one stereo, you know, for the for a household of five. And so from really early on, I just remember like you'd, you'd kind of have to book in time to go and and you know listen to music. And so I'd and you'd th- listen to music in the front room. That was the thing. So you could you could close the door, and I'd go in and like just go through my parents' vinyl collection. And so you know from that from the time I was sort of seven or whatever, I'd go in and you know, until I was in my mid-teens, you know, until I was, you know, had a stereo in my room and everything, I would just go into the front room and just trawl through their records and explore all that stuff. And it was, it was really great. And as a, you know, as an aside, I do wonder what the next generation of kids version of that's going to be, if it's going to be because you know, it was a my experience was highly curated because it was my parents' record collection. So there was
0: yeah, that's right.
1: There was only a limited amount of stuff that I was listening to, and it was all really good. Um, whereas you know, with streaming and everything, which you know, I'm totally into streaming, but it means that everybody has access to everything. So I wonder what what the ver- version of going into the front room and exploring a curated selection of music is going to be for the next generation.
0: What was your go-to in the front
1: room? Um, well, it was just heaps of stuff. Like, so at first I was really, it was the Beatles and, and the Beach Boys was the, the big ones because I just loved all the storytelling and, you know, it was, you know, those albums are so kid-friendly. It's, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty much children's music when you listen to it now. <laughs> um, are, you li-
0: are you playing that stuff to your kids?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then it was, you know, like the Doobie Brothers and XTC and, um, Jackson Brown, James Taylor, Early Billy Joel, early Elton John. Um, XTC
0: is pretty left field for a kid.
1: Oh it's well, got it was some just some
0: pretty crazy shit going on.
1: Well, I became an atheist through listening to XTC with that song. Yeah, right. Dear, Dear God, god. You know? yeah. Um, and particularly because there was the verse when the kid's voice comes in. I was like, oh my god. That's right. That's such a killer. So it was all that kind of stuff, and then. Um, you know, as I got a bit older, then I started moving into Led Zeppelin and and Sabbath and all that kind of stuff, and and then my dad got heaps into blues, so there was a lot of blues stuff going on. So it was kind of everything um, until I started forming my own musical taste, and then it was just um,
0: Motley Crew. Mot- yeah, no, it really
1: was. It was it was it was Aerosmith. Aerosmith was the first record I bought, Pump, and then it was just <laughs> from from the time that I was twelve until like no no shit until I was about nineteen. It was just Metal and you know, I mean obviously grunge and all that, but it was essentially metal and punk, you know, for that whole period.
0: what was your hair doing at that time?
1: Ah uh, well, this was the nineties early nineties, so it was I had um long hair with an undercut, of course <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: I'd really like to see that
1: oh God, it's the worst, <laughs> I've got photos, and they're the worst it's like um. <laughs> because I was really skinny and I had really bad skin like I had terrible oh. acne and so I had you know this shaved head um with this you know like and I've got really you know fine stringy hair so I was like you know like I just looked like a little rat. I looked like a drowned rat, you know, <laughs> like a rat-faced boy. That's what I looked like. Oh. It wasn't a, it wasn't a good time in my life. <laughs> but you
0: were listening to sick tunes. Yeah, I was so just. was, I was just
1: right. Yeah, it's exactly. But I remember, like, I was the classic angry teen. I remember coming home and like listening to Biohazard and like doing sit ups to try and you know make myself not so fucking skinny and disgusting anymore.
0: <laughs> oh well, that seemed to have worked to a certain extent.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm um, yeah. Uh, I've got a wife, you know, I've got a wife Yay! and kids now. So and kids, you something did it. Something
0: worked out, yeah. Um, so tell me about when you wanted to start playing guitar then, after you decided you wanted to be a singer.
1: Well, that was when I was about um, 14 and my, so I'd been in a band for, you know, three years by that point. I was, you know, joined a band and was the singer and, um, and it was then we went to high school and we sort of fandangled our way into getting music credit for, for playing in this rock band. We had, you know, we played at assemblies and stuff like that. But I was always just singing, and it was actually my mum that said, "You know, like if you want to, pers- you know, if you want to be in a band, you know, you're probably going to be more of a contributor if you learn how to play an instrument." And I was like, "Yeah, fair enough." Smart so, lady. Yeah. So I took guitar lessons for about six months, but I just, I just didn't really like classes. But um, and he was a great teacher, this guy as well. But I just, I've never really enjoyed learning stuff in that context, you know, so I, I, I kind of learnt bar chords and a few chords and what I needed and then I just um, learnt three Soundgarden songs which are in Drop D <laughs> and, the, and then I just was like, all right, that's all I need to know and then I just quit. <laughs> and then I still play in Drop D to this day. Do you? <laughs> every, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, every song that I've ever written has been in Drop D. Really? Um, yeah, every song. And so all my solo stuff is in Drop D. Wow, um, it's, I didn't it's know from that. from learning... Yeah, yeah, it's from learning Soundgarden songs. And then I so I stopped classes and I just developed a style from playing in drop D and um, and that's when I started writing songs. So I was about fifteen when I started writing songs on guitar. Um, and yeah, and that's 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 how it happened. Soundgarden.
0: <laughs> Amazing. And when so when mm. did you then decide to sort of go finger picky acousticky
1: Well that was that was another kind of um revelationary moment where I was it was after high school so I think I was 19 and I was working at this um car wash yeah and it was really shitty hard work you know it was like you'd you'd work for eight hours and you'd get a 10 minute break in the middle of the day that was pretty much it it wasn't a great job I'm not sure why I was doing it but anyway (laughs) um but I had this van I bought this van and um I had a mattress in the back of the van as you do and I was like in my 10 minute break I was lying down in the back of the van I was listening to Triple J And Elliot Smith's Waltz number two came on.
0: Oh, great song.
1: Yeah, and it just changed, it just something in my mind flipped, you know. I was like, oh, my God. And it was, it's funny because, you know, like anybody that knows Elliot Smith knows he was heavily influenced by all those singer songwriters, 70s singer songwriters that I mentioned before. Yeah, yeah. You know, early Beatles, early, you know, I mean, even there's some XTC stuff in there as well, I reckon, but
0: definitely Beatles
1: and, um, you know, uh, early Jackson Brown, James Taylor and that kind of stuff. So it was, it was kind of like I suddenly heard all this stuff from my childhood presented, you know, kind of represented to me in this modern um, guy's context. And then, you know, I, I this was before you could just Google an artist. So I, like, you know, started reading about him in Rolling Stone and found out that he was had been in a punk band for years before going solo, which is what I had been doing. And I was like, ah, oh, just... There's something about this that I want to pursue, so I listened to Elliot Smith Heaps and I started kind of playing guitar like well, I don't play guitar any anything like Elliot Smith actually, but I started writing songs that were kind of had that more um, narrative driven thing as opposed to kind of like angry guitar music.
0: yeah <laughs> and,
1: yeah, but I mean it was you know it was still another another eight years before I did anything with that stuff, but but that's when it kind of started.
0: Wow. You know, I have a similar experience with Elliot Smith because I, the only time in my life ever where I've w- walked into a record store and heard an album and asked the person what it was to so I could buy it immediately was that album, <laughs> that EXO that album by Elliot Smith. Yeah, I just it's remember a, it's incredible. listening to it in the record store. I was flicking through records and just going, oh my God, it, it's like resonated so deeply with me. I needed to own it immediately. Yeah.
1: I still listen to the, all of those records and just am transported, you know, back to this period in in my life, which is you know, yeah. which is the great thing about music. It's you know, it ha- has that power to transport you into these places where you were or you know where you where you wanted to be, even sometimes. And yeah, it was great. So he he was the big sort of he was the gateway the gateway drug for me. Oh, into, that's um, so lovely. Yeah. It was and
0: good. so then. You started playing around Australia. Is that, did, was it sort of like an instant, I'm going to start writing these songs and put out records or was it a bit of a process?
1: No, it was definitely a process. I mean, that, that happened when I was 19 and, and I didn't go even start to play solo stuff until I was 24. So I was still in a punk band for another five years and we released a couple of EPs and we, you know, we toured up and down the coast and we had a little bit of interest. You know, things sort of had a bit of promise but then the band started to fall apart. Um, and so one, one of the guys in the band left, and the remaining three, which included myself, re- released one more EP, um, and at the same time as we'd done that EP in the same studio, I just, I spent 800 bucks that I borrowed off my folks and, and um, recorded four or five sort of solo style songs where I played all the instruments, um, and I just like, I was just, I, it was the first time I'd recorded solo stuff, Um, You know, I had a little cassette, eight-track, four-track cassette recorder at home, so I'd done some demoing there. But um, when I did this at the studio, I just was like, just this just feels right, you know. Like after being in a band for you know over well since I was twelve, so like you know over ten years, yeah. And just and it just sort of or everything always being, you know, democracy and always having to do everything, compromise, and you know make everybody happy. I was just kind of like. Wow, this feels so good to just do my own thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and and then the thing was like I so I did those demos, and then I applied for a little grant, um, and I won the grant. You know, I won two thousand bucks to press press up CDs of those demos, and then I I sent the demo into um, this management company who'd sort of been vaguely interested in an empty flight, which is my punk band. Um, and they were like, you know, we we don't want to manage the punk band. But we want to manage you for solo stuff. And I was like, all right,
0: great, let's,
1: let's do it. Which was fine because the other guys were ready to quit. And that, but they went on to play in my solo band for two years before, you know, Aww. completing their university degrees and going on to very successful careers. So it was <laughs> it was a it was a kind of nice. It was a pretty smooth. Well, it was an incredibly amicable transition into that, so that was good.
0: That's great. That's the best you could hope for.
1: It is, yeah. But I mean, and then it took another four years of being managed. This was by my still, still by my same management um, before you know I got a record deal or or anything like that. So it was it was a bloody long process. It took it took a full ten years of being out of high school before I was able to make a living out of being a musician.
0: Wow. And it's weird because when I think of you, I um, I definitely think you're like one of the hardest working musicians I know. You're doing albums like every couple of years. Do you see yourself as being careerist?
1: Um, I'm not sure what careerist means, but if you mean like I'm in it, I'm in it till the end, then. Yes, I think that's
0: Yeah, I mean I guess that's what it means. And also like you think about it in a business sense, like you need to do this to to make money and you you think about timing of things and
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's it's a it's a difficult balance and I I've, I've sort of been thinking about this a lot because the best of's coming out and everything and you know, because it's been 11 years now. So there's always been this this there's two sides to me and and they've seemed to have worked well and I think it's because I had so long to, um, you know, I think I had, because I had so long of it not working out that when I, when it did start to work out, I was just incredibly protective and conscious of how bloody lucky I was to have had a a break and I didn't want to blow it. Yeah. The the flip, well, the flip side of that though is that I've never compromised anything creatively. So like, you know, there've been so many times when people have said, if you didn't have so many lyrics in your songs, you know, they'd probably get <laughs> if they they'd probably get played on commercial radio. And I'm like, Yeah, fair enough, but I'm not I'm just gonna write what I write, you know. And then there have been many times, even when, you know, and my manager won't mind me saying this, but when Middle of the Hill was gonna be the single, my manager was like, Would you consider working with a, a pop writer to to rework Middle of the Hill and and, you know, add a chorus in and everything and make it a more conventional structure? And I was just like, No, I don't wanna do that. I'm not going to do it if if that means it's going to be a, a less successful song. Then so be it. And he was like, fair enough. I just had to ask, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's That's been heaps. It's such of... a
0: great song. Does it not have a chorus? I don't no. even notice that.
1: It's just got a linear progression. But and, you know, and things like releasing Lighthouse Song as the se- as the first single from my second album, where it's like a slow fingerpicked song, where the main word in the in the chorus is fuckers, you know. Yeah. Like, all those things are not particularly smart career moves if you're thinking about trying to get mainstream success but I think in terms of the career that I wanted to have they were the right moves you know so yeah it's kind of that that balance between trying to stay true to your creative vision but also then having to think about how you're going to make that work in terms of earning a living you know which was I think people people want authenticity I think that's the, the bottom line
0: yeah and you're nailing it
1: Smash! <laughs> I'm smashing authenticity mate <laughs>
0: Well, how do you feel about censorship in the Lighthouse song? Because you have a version where you don't say fuckers.
1: Well, that was, yeah, that was for um, Radio National. Um, right. You know, I think it's, it's, I, you know, it's fine. I mean, I sing, I always think of like, um, you know, things like Radio Airplay are basically advertisements for your career and your live show. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so if, you know, if you have to edit out a swear word, I never changed the words. I just edited them out. Um, and you know, if that's the case and it means that it, the rest of the song gets played on something like Radio National and then people come and see your show and hear you say the real version, then that's, that's fine. It's like singles, you know, it's like radio edits yeah. as well. I don't really have a problem with radio edits because the, I think of radio airplayers, players advertisements for for your the rest of your career because that's that is pretty much what it is you know
0: radio edits shit me i think that like if 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 mainstream radio can play bohemian rhapsody i think why should anyone else have to edit their songs
1: i know what you mean but i think you know in all facets of life there are some things and some groups that just get a pass on stuff and you know Bohemian Rhapsody it's you know it's a that's a pretty big song <laughs> you know what i mean it is <laughs> uh it's a pretty popular song it's like um you know Stairway to Heaven as well is really long but i just i just think that you know um you just if you think of radio airplay as pu- purely a means to an end of getting people to hear a sample of your work then a kind of as long as you are not comprom- this is it's a it's a hard thing to define but as long as you're not compromising what you as the songwriter considers to be the integrity of the song. I don't think it matters. So for me, the word fuckers in the Lighthouse song is not, that's not the core message that I was trying to get across in, in, in that song, you know what I mean? That's kind of like, oh, I don't know, that's, the, that's just the way I needed to express that particular sentiment. But, the, you know, the, the core of that song for me is, is what's around the word fuckers anyway. So, yeah.
0: That's true. Do you, um, so people mention to you a lot that you have too many lyrics in your songs?
1: Yeah, I mean, it comes up all the time. Like every time I, uh, you know, it hasn't happened for a long time, but every time I've broken in a new band member into my live touring band, um, you know, they're like, Jesus, man. Like they're trying to learn learn the lyrics for BVs and stuff. And they're like, fuck, man, you just, you really crammed them in there. And I was, because <laughs> we're doing um, Memories and Dust in full on this next tour. Oh, great. I, yeah, and there's some some songs that I haven't listened to for ages, and there's you know the song "Fed and Watered" from Memories and Dust. I mean, that's just like nonstop talking. It's just like it's just like I couldn't, I just couldn't shut up about what I wanted to say in that song, you know. <laughs> um,
0: Can you so remember it?
1: I can't at the moment, but I but I will have to by the time the tour comes around. I mean, I've had to like I've had to learn, I've had to look up. All these songs on the internet to relearn how to play them.
0: <laughs> Great.
1: Because I couldn't remember, like, there's a song called Covers of Throne that I literally have never played since I recorded it. So that's like 11, 11 years.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's tough. <laughs> yeah. I remember doing that when um, Regurgitator played two playing a unit. We were like oh. just looking up the lyrics on, on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah.
1: Everyone forgot. <laughs> I mean, people, people might think that we're like, you know, as songwriters, we're like sitting around singing our own songs
0: yeah every day but
1: <laughs> and and actually like my my kids have started to listen to my music now and they listen to it as they're going to sleep and i Aww. when i was putting them to bed they were like listening to memories and dust and i was like using it as study time i was lying there you know putting them <laughs> to bed and and listening to to like you know monkey with a drum and stuff like that you know i haven't yeah it was it was really good actually they they you know i'm still really proud of those songs
0: i love the idea of your kids um Singing your verbose lyrics.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and they question them a lot as well. Like, and they, you what know, what
0: does
1: like, this mean? Yeah. Well, so my oldest son is like, you know, my youngest son always falls asleep really quickly. My oldest son is more like me. He's like just fights sleep all the time, and so I'll think he'll be asleep. You know, it'll be like ten minutes, and there's no noise from up on his bunk. And I'm like, okay, he's gone to sleep, and then I'll go. He'll go like, Dad, what are you saying in that? What are you saying in that bit? And it will be like, He's saying, what are you saying, hatchlings? hatchlings all we are or something like yeah like hatchlings like baby turtles or i'll tell you tomorrow i'll tell you tomorrow just <laughs> shut up just go to sleep please
0: dad what does i'll and all these walls of attrition and these invocations mean <laughs> oh
1: very nice <laughs> yes very nice.
0: it's actually like my um i have this secret lifelong not lifelong but secret dream <laughs> i should say um to sing a lighthouse song with you one day
1: Oh, come and do it in um in Brisbane.
0: I don't want to force you into it. I'm just saying it's I would <laughs> I would just want to sing it with you in my lounge room.
1: Yeah, we'll come and do it in Brisbane. We'll do it like we'll we'll quickly do a rehearsal beforehand and
0: That will be my life it. made. I okay, fucking great. love that song. I think great. that's one of one of the most beautiful songs you've ever written. Oh, thank you. Along with yeah, just was really drawn to that song, um, When Your Colors Go. And Oh, yeah. I do remember texting you about it saying, oh, you should sing this low more often.
1: <laughs> that, that song I had kicking around for ages and it was just, I just always find like um, I, it's its hard for me. To, when I sing low, it's hard. I don't want to um, sound like I'm putting on a voice. So it's, and you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, and I find it difficult not to s- start like trying to sing like the guy from The National when I'm singing low. So I've got to be really tough. careful. You, you don't get into some dirty. You know, that kind of like male <laughs> low voice that Nick Cave yeah. and everybody does. So, I, yeah.
0: don't, I don't think you'd do that. I think no, it's I didn't, still I your voice.
1: I tried to, i like made a real conscious effort to not do that. So thank you. I mean, all <laughs> I can say is thank you.
0: I, um, I recently got to sing the Velvet Underground and Nico album. With regurgitator, and I got to be Nico, what, and the that whole, was re-
1: the whole album. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow.
0: So we we played it at um, NGV and then at um, Mona Foma.
1: Oh, cool! And
0: it was really funny because I had to sing so super low to sing those Nico songs, especially mm. "All Tomorrow's Parties," mm. um, and I found it really difficult. Like the same sort of idea as you, I found it so difficult not to ham it up. Because you want to start getting really German and, and cheesy, but I bet you could. You <laughs> like,
1: probably could. You could. You could ham it up a bit, couldn't you? Because you're in kind yeah. of in character oh, in a
0: Yeah. T- totally. Yeah. Someone came up to me after the NGV gig and said, like, "Oh, you really nailed those Nico vocals," and I I was like, um, thank you. I <laughs> I just don't know if that's a good thing because <laughs> she was really bad. You're such a good actor, God! You're such
1: a good actor up there. Oh. <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, it was interesting singing low. Anyway, I really like that. Um, I really like that song when your colours go. Thanks. And you should sing lower more often.
1: Okay, great. Next album sorted.
0: Hey, um, talk to me about writing in New York because that's something that we both have in common. Mm. Um, you've done it a few times, haven't you?
1: Uh yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. One one time was you know I've been to New York a bunch of times and I've always written stuff when I'm there inevitably like you know like a part of the lighthouse song was written in new york and and um or probably quite a few songs actually um but there was one and I mixed a record in New York, which was a really big deal at the time and um and i my very first i oh, actually yeah so my very first writing sort of writing trip that was you know on the record company dime was in New York staying in a in this great warehouse with the with the label at the time and um so I have done a fair bit of stuff but the the time that was the most most full-on I guess was when I went I went there for a month to write to finish off writing for Only Sparrows and it was a it was fucking terrible it was shithouse (laughs) 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 it was it was good for like it was good for creativity and it was good for um basically making myself as depressed as I possibly could be in order to write Aww. songs but it was it was a bad idea it was like it was it was just an ill-conceived idea because it was I my I just had a kid so my first son was four months old and I'd taken four months off everything touring and everything just to be at home so for four months I was home every day with my baby and it was amazing and beautiful and then I, I knew that I needed to finish off the record and my wife was like I, I said like I need to. I think I need to because we lived in a flat, and I just needed some space because my I'd had previously the second bedroom, which was then the nursery, had been my studio room. So I I didn't have anywhere to kind of work out of. Right.
0: I remember you saying that you'd just set up your studio and then you yeah, had yeah. a baby. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so you know, which is which was great and beautiful, except that it meant that if you know my wife was off work, I was off work. We had a four month old baby. There was just nowhere to go. And I was like, I'm just going to go to the Central Coast for a couple of days, and um, you know, stay in a caravan park, and just it was was in summer, it was in December. I was like, you know, I'm just going to go swimming and just, just you know, be by myself and write some songs. And Sarah was like, Why don't you go to New York? You know, why don't you really get into this and and go to New York? And I was like, Really? You you sure? You you know, we've got a four month (laughs) old baby. You sure about that? And she's like, Yeah, go to New York. And I was like. Okay, I mean, fuck, that sounds amazing. I'll I'll suss it out with the label, and the label's like, yeah, you should go to New York. I was like, all right, I'm going to go to New York. So I rented an <laughs> apartment for like a month in in um, Greenwich Village, and and I flew over there, and but you know, hundred percent by myself, um, which I hadn't done for you know years, done you know done that kind of thing by myself, apart from touring touring, you're never really by yourself. Um, and I went over there, and you know, I had three or four really good mates that lived in. New York that were Aussies and they'd all come back to Australia for summer and I was like ugh. so it's fucking snowing in New York it was like dead of winter and this apartment that I rented was you know pretty cool but very very old older style you know walk up you had to walk up the stairs and everything um and I didn't know anybody and I was there for three and a half weeks and I was just absolutely miserable I was missing my baby you know was missing my wife and i was calling home and she and you know sarah was like you know the baby had just started to not sleep at all and i was like oh god damn it you know like i just everything was going great when i was there yeah um anyway so i got a lot out of it i made i made sure that it was worth worth it in in the sense of creativity so i took i i'd taken a little studio rig so i had pro Tools set up in the apartment and i'd basically just go out wandering all day, and I'd go. I went out to um, Ellis Island and I went just for long subway rides and went to all the galleries and did all that stuff. And went to see, I went awesome. out to Brooklyn and saw um, uh, Evan Dando and Juliana Hatfield play oh, on, a, on a super snowy night, you know, like tracked out there on the subway and found my way <laughs> to the Bell House, which is this great venue. And I was, you know, that's where I wrote, um, you know, No One Wants a Lover is, is basically about that experience when it says, you know, sometimes it's good to be alone. and good to be drunk watching a band you don't know or whatever Whatever I say yeah. in that song. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, yeah, 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 I'm just Googling it now. <laughs> but, you know, and it also talks about, you know, if it's raining, the gully will be rushing by now. And, and that was in, in Australia. I lived at um, Bronte Beach and our flat backed onto the Bronte Gully, which is like a kind of river. And when it was raining, you could really hear the water rushing down through the gully and stuff like that. So I was kind of imagining life back at home in the beautiful summer of australia when i was stuck in you know knee-deep snow in in new york so I was, oh. it was it was a really evocative and inspirational uh time but i'm not i'm not actually sure that i would have wouldn't have got as much out of going to a caravan park on the central coast <laughs> you know yeah I,
0: know. I mean it i think it is good putting yourself into those situations and going completely out of your comfort zone and you do create completely different work there, I believe.
1: You do. I mean, I, and I did, you know, that's a very different record for me and it's, it's actually one of my favourites. It's, you know, very, it's very, it's much darker than a lot of the stuff and it's kind of because of that. But I, I, do, I do reckon, you know, now, you know, having a studio space and everything, I, I've realised that it's, at least for me, it's more about storing up experiences whenever they happen you don't need to kind of for me anyway like I say you don't have to I don't have to go out of my way to put myself in situations which are going to cause me emotional turmoil in order to get songs you know I I, I just kind of you know I get inspired by things and as long as I document those ideas then it's it's more about me coming back into my studio at home and being able to kind of refine those ideas and and turn them into a song as opposed to Taking myself away and putting myself in a situation for a month where I'm just miserable—it's not like that for me. That's yeah. just—that's not worth it anymore. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, it's and it's kind of impossible when you have a family. You yeah, know, and you it's ju- just it's, go, I'm going to New York and going to be really sad for well, a month. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean,
1: I, I I could and people do and you know my family would be supportive of me doing that. It's just that I actually value being happy and comfortable more than being miserable and alone <laughs> it's kind of yeah as, i totally as as agree yeah. i
0: think you get to a point in your life where you're like, i just want to be happy now yeah <laughs> i yeah, just exactly. i don't want to sleep on fucking floors anymore
1: <laughs> I, yeah, like... the, the, I remember the flat there was like um it didn't have any heating or well, it had it had a, a fireplace with for the heating and um I probably did have heating but I didn't I couldn't figure it out if there was some there. <laughs> and there was two there was two beds. So one of the beds was the was advertised as the bedroom but it was like a um really hard bed and the the flat was so old it was like probably built in the 1700s or something. And and the floors were sloped so that when I slept on this this bed in this bedroom in inverted commas, it was like sloped enough that I would start to roll off the bed. And so <laughs> the only other place to sleep was on this um uh fold-out couch but it had like a blow-up mattress in the fold-out couch and it was just like really fucking uncomfortable as well so it was like I'd go out walking all day and then I'd get a bottle of whiskey on the way home and I'd just get drunk and write songs and demo them and watch infomercials until about four o'clock in the morning (laughs) it just wasn't like it wasn't great
0: (laughs) Yeah, that just sounds like a drag. Well, my experience seemed um a lot more positive than that, but I probably didn't get as much work done as you because I was like, I knew a lot of people.
1: Well, yeah, but that's that's why I'd chosen to go there is because all my previous experiences of New York had been amazing, you know. So the yeah. the, the time before that, um, I'd been there with my wife, and we'd we'd um stayed in this apartment of this relatively successful author that my wife knew um who wrote you know nick and nora you know that that,
0: yeah, book yeah. that
1: got turned into a movie so sarah knew her and so we stayed in her apartment while she was somewhere in california in, in ups in uh you know upper west side so we had this great apartment that we were house sitting and we you know we knew heaps of people there all the friends that i was trying to hook up with in in the december that followed um went you know were there when sarah and i were there so we had this incredible experience where we were going out to dinner and going to see comedy and going to um, you know going to see bands and all this. And then the time before that, I'd been staying in bloody Molly Ringwald's apartment with
0: what? Um,
1: with not <laughs> she wasn't there, but like with um, my label at the time who, were, who knew her or something or subletted off her or wow. something like that. Um, and I'd been mixing my record. And the time before that, I'd been staying in this in this warehouse. So all the other all the previous times were what you're saying, you know, like I was hanging out with mates and it was so just you know, stimulating and incredibly exciting and, and happy and fantastic. And that's why I went there. That's why I chose to go there. And it was just not that at all.
0: <laughs> oh, But it sounds like you got something really good out of it in the end. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Happy end. Happy yeah, ha- end. <laughs> happy,
1: happiness, from, <laughs> happiness from turmoil, you know, that's what, that's what we
0: struggle <laughs> with. So you said before that you liked narrative-based songs. Do you think that, I mean, I know a lot of your songs are narrative-based, but do you always write autobiographically?
1: I do, but it's on this um, on this best of when I was going through... For, so for the second disc, which is all B-sides and rarities and demos and stuff, I found... I was look, trawling through my hard drives for old demos and I found this song called um, Coles Lane Crossing, which is probably only one of two songs that I've written uh, as somebody else kind of thing. Um, so most often it's it's autobiographical and if it's not if it's not a 100% autobiographical, it's, you know, it's, it's more or less based on my experience and then shrouded in imagery and stuff so that it's, it's not, you know, so it's in not code. obvious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I just, I find it really hard to do what, you know, people like Paul Kelly and, and Dylan and everybody do and write from another perspective. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a different, maybe it should be easier, I don't know, but I just find it ...difficult to sound authentic and difficult for it to not sound... ...you know, when I do it at least for it to not sound kind of... Um, ...I don't know, like forced or something. So there's only yeah. been a couple of times when I've successfully done it. Yeah,
0: I've, I have exactly the same experience. I always, I always write autobiographically and feel like a fool... ...when I write from someone else's perspective.
1: Yeah, you know, it's... I mean, you hear songs that are great when people do it... ...but you also hear songs... That aren't great when people do it, you know, and it's it's a real skill, and it's obviously why people like Paul Kelly and, and Bob Dylan are as you know highly lauded as they are, because it's kind of sure. it's it's more like writing a novel or writing poetry or something, I guess. It's it's yeah, um,
0: which they also can do and yeah. have done. It's a, it's yeah,
1: a, yeah, it's a different it's a different set of skills.
0: Um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about your involvement with like you've done some shows with orchestras Mm. um specifically sydney symphony orchestra right
1: yeah and the western australian symphony orchestra as well which is great
0: and did did you how did that come about and what did what did you have to do to prepare those shows
1: um so that came about just from me wanting to do it like I'd, i'd always wanted to do it and then you know only the year before last i was kind of in the in the position and had a catalogue that was well known enough to kind of approach the sso and say you know do you want to do you want to do a show together it was li- it was kind of literally as simple as that and they were interested in doing it but i don't read or write music so we had to figure out a way to get all these songs scored and everything and we wanted to do it in a way that was a bit more interesting than just getting a shit hot orchestrator to do it so we decided to get um like 10 emerging um, and up-and-coming Australian uh, composers and orchestrators from around Australia, um, so from all different Great. states, yeah. And so we went through a big, a big list. I went into the SSO offices and we listened to a bunch of music, and I kind of identified the ones to my, you know, untrained ear, that whose compositions sounded kind of interesting and edgy, as far as I was concerned. And and then we approached them to orchestrate one or two of the songs. Um, wow eight, eight that's from the awesome thing. yeah it was really good and it was really liberating because you know as i said i don't read or write music so even even when they'd be working on the stuff i couldn't really be involved beyond saying you know dynamically i'd like this bit to lift or you know what about if we you know try and highlight this guitar motif here that keeps coming in why don't you try and highlight that on an instrument you know x instrument um, so it was really a process of kind of trust and letting, them, letting these people do what they wanted to do. And it was great. It worked out amazing.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So when you have scores in your songs, which some of them have string sections, how do you get someone to score those for you or do you sort of have an idea of what they are?
1: Um, a bit of both. I mean, especially early on, I, I mapped it all out on a keyboard, like on string sounds on the keyboard. Yeah. Because um, you know, I can I can I can do it by ear. I just don't know. I just don't know what I'm playing. I can just so you know. So I'd do these kind of string arrangements on keyboards, and then I'd give it to people like Naomi from Coda and stuff like that. ...and I'd say, can you try and?
0: I love Naomi.
1: Yeah, she's amazing. So she did she did all, all the stuff on um, Memories and Dust and that. And I'd say, can you kind of arrange this so that it it works for an orchestra because of oh, for for a string section. Because, you know, things like cellos are in different keys and all this shit and, you know, I just don't know that stuff. Yeah, no, I don't know that stuff. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know. It's That's witchcraft. <laughs> it is. Well, it's just, it's it's literally another language and, you know, I can't, I can't do that either. So, <laughs> um, but on the last couple of records working with John Castle, he always works with Ross from the Cat Empire, who's the horn oh, yeah. player in the Cat Empire. But he does these amazing, amazing, amazing string arrangements. And so, you know, like, because I trusted him, because he'd done it before. Um, on the on the most recent record, I I would literally just say like sort of, um, you know, I kind of want this to be a bit Nick Drakey and a little bit stevens Stevensy or whatever, and he'd just go away and do it, and then we'd have like a Skype conference where he'd he'd play it over the fi- over the Skype, and I'd be like, yeah, that sounds great, and it was just again, it's you know, a process. It's been a process of finding people that you inherently trust, and then letting them do their best work as opposed to trying to micromanage anything which is you
0: know And it, I think it's hard when you're not like a master of that particular craft
1: Yeah well it's about res- it's it's about respecting people's expertise as well you know and, and, yeah, and totally. acknowledging that that's their thing and writing the songs is your thing and and but I can't I, I can't I definitely can't do a string arrangement as good as Ross from the Cat Empire, you know
0: Yeah I, <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was on a um, I've been on some grant panels where you know some of the submissions have been classical music and I I was always like giving them really high marks like this is amazing you know (laughs) I totally could not do that this is incredible and then the classical music specialist you know would come in and go this is really poorly written and this is fucked and this is pedestrian this is pedestrian (laughs) yeah that's a word yeah (laughs) (laughs) I'll be like ah cool yeah I thought that was really good because I couldn't I couldn't do that in a million yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: I, I know what you mean. And I think I think actually classical people have like extremely high standards as well because it's such a technical, oh, totally. you know, it's such a, there's a, such a history to to kind of dive into and, and draw from that there, there would be a lot to be derivative from, you know what I mean? So I think if they, they have much higher standards than than us, you know, than us Luddites. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but it was funny when, you know, th- those people would turn to me for advice on like electronic music or something. Yeah. And I'd be like, just trust me. This is really good. It trust me. This, is, really is, this is a banger. It's a banger.
1: Trust me. <laughs> it's a fucking banger. Have a pinger. Have a pinger and see what you think. Oh, you're going to fucking love it, mate. Woo. Whoop,
0: whoop. Just have a half. Just, just have a yeah, half. Just start with a
1: half. Just uh, <laughs> trust me. You're going to want another one. Trust me. <laughs>
0: yeah that's um that's exactly how that went down well i'm so, glad
1: i it's good to know that that's what the, <laughs> the grant you know the grant world is like when you're judging grants you're all just on ecstasy just fucking cutting <laughs> it's great yeah
0: you would give so much money to random shit if oh, you yeah. were on ecstasy <laughs> this is amazing
1: oh i love this i just love it oh don't you love it oh man i feel incredible just. i remember actually
0: getting um getting an application i'll try not to go in too much detail so <laughs> there was this application that was basically recording wind and it was so beautifully written that i thought oh this is
1: just give it to this him this is gonna give be amazing money. yeah give them
0: the give money the mo- it's gonna be so beautiful and then this um producer that was on the panel too he was like i've spent my entire life keeping wind out of microphones <laughs> 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 and I think it's just going to sound like this <sighs> <laughs> yeah. and I was like oh yeah, yeah.
1: but you know but the, the thing about like the arts which is the, the which is the reason you know I'm particularly passionate about this and particularly bummed about Australia at the moment is there's there should also be funding for 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 those sorts of projects
0: of course that's the thing
1: you know like if you're going to put that project against like you know the next you know fuck, i don't know that like megan washington was a grant winner and stuff like that so if you're going to put the wind the wind record beside an emerging megan washington or Montaigne or whatever yeah you know it's not fair to be comparing those two projects
0: that's right whereas if we
1: had you know we're the most underfunded country in the world in terms of well not probably not in the world but we're you know in terms of developed country where our arts funding is extremely poor and if we had more it would just you know you could have those full-on art projects which are worthwhile in their their own oh, ride, they are. You know? it,
0: it honestly there were there were so many of those projects that just sounded like they would be so interesting and beautiful but yeah that as you said they just wouldn't compare against like a, a pop band or yeah. an, an orchestra you know, like yeah, a beautiful yeah. classical piece performed by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. There's just there's no there's no competition.
1: And it's just it's hard, you know. I think it's you know it's 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 a different discussion, but it's what I find very frustrating about Australia is that eventually, if we don't have more funding for left of center projects, like every it's just art and culture is just going to become more and more homogenized and boring. So that's right. You know, that's my two cents. What are we going to do? Vote vote one. Vote one pipe. I'm running for well, prime I minister.
0: Go, go fund me for the wind project.
1: Yeah, have you still got the details? Let's just. That
0: no, was a long time ago. I don't even no, have they... to know.
1: Let's just fund it but anyway. But you
0: have a you have like a a fellowship, don't you? That you you provide people with, um, coaching and money and money. Something? Yeah. Well, I mean, what do and, you do?
1: Yeah. Well, it's called the JP Partnership, and um, it's a grant. It's just basically a grant. So it's like. Seven and a half grand and mentorship from me and also Greg, my manager, and Stephen Wade, who's my booking agent. And that's um, awesome. Yeah, and you know, like that's that's what it is, and I judge it all by myself. So there's like a couple of hundred entries every year, and I wow. judge them all just 100% by myself, which is starting to become a bit a bit too much, I think. So that's
0: I, arduous. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I might get somebody on else on board um, next year, but. But it's been great, you know. It's been I've got to hear a lot of, um, you know, new and emerging artists from all different genres. And the last three winners have been really great, and and you know, particularly the last two. the The, the most recent one um, is has you know only got announced two weeks ago, but I'm sure she'll go on to do great things. But you know, Gordy and Alex Leahy who are the last couple of uh, winners. Of, you know, they're absolutely smashing it, and I feel really proud that I've played a you know very small part in in that, and it's just good. It's just because you know I just sort of realised that there was a lack of of grant opportunities, and you know I was in a position to do something about it, so I just did it.
0: Is that your money?
1: Um, it's 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 two and a half grand of my money and five grand of Apra's money. So I went and and
0: Great.
1: negotiated with Apra to to double my funding um but you know that's
0: uh, that's great i'm so happy that you do that and that you're continuing to do that well yeah Australia needs more of those things
1: i've got i just gotta i mean there's some years when i'm like i don't know if i can afford two and a half grand for this for this grant but you know it's that's i want to i'm committed to doing it so
0: that's awesome i think uh it would be great if more people did that in australia
1: yeah, I, I mean, there's people that can do it. And, I mean, you know, people do. Like, John Butler's always been amazing with that stuff. Yeah, and that's right. Missy Higgins has contributed to his thing in the past. And, um, you know, Claire Bowditch does does stuff in that kind of general um, advocacy space and all that. So there's people that do it. And at the end of the day, like, you know, I went up to Canberra last... Down to Canberra last week and had meetings with um, the head of the Greens and Anthony Albanese from the Labour Party and stuff about trying to kind of get rid of this um, copyright reform stuff that the Productivity Commission's... That's right. ...recommended and, yeah. you know, and I just saw how re- responsive they were when it was me and Richard Flanagan who's a, an amazing Australian author and yeah. Bron- Bronwyn Branc- Bancroft who's an Indigenous artist and they just politicians just responded so enthusiastically when actual creators were talking about their lives and how... You know how how government legislation can affect their lives, whereas if you just send other lobbyists up there, they just kind of zone out. So I think you know more more artisan, creative people should should speak out about that kind of stuff because people actually listen.
0: Yeah, did, and didn't Kate Sobrano have a part in that too? I thought I read something about her input.
1: Yeah, well, so many people have. I mean, I know Mark Lazar and Jenny Morris. I was talking to Kath McCabe today, and she did she did a piece with them. About it recently, and I mean everybody's trying to get on board because it's, you know, it's bad, bad stuff. So,
0: is it about blocking access to internet sites that enable copyright infringements?
1: It's that that's that was one thing that they were trying to do a couple of years ago, but this most recent thing is there's two two main things, and it's called um, one of them safe safe harbor, and one of them's called fair use. And so in America, they have a system called fair use, which means that um, people can take something which is, you know, the copyright is owned by somebody else and they can, in certain circumstances, they can use it without having to pay a license fee or even getting permission from the artist um, under the US system, which is called fair use. Right. So, so that's sometimes fine so like in in examples of if you're if you have a podcast like you do and you wanted to use a snippet of audio from 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 one of my songs or a snippet of audio from an interview that I'd done with somebody else to to kind of highlight a, a point that you're making or something about me then that that would fall under for fair use and you wouldn't have to get permission and stuff and it'd be fine right yeah but then if you but then if you instead of making a podcast, if you just played somebody else's interview with me and said, and now here's my podcast, it's an interview with Josh Pike, and then you just played that interview, then obviously that would be bad, right? I mean, that's taking somebody else's um, creative content. And in Australia, you would have to pay a licence fee. But in America, sometimes that can fall under fair use. And so there's been lots of... And it would be up to the person that had done the original interview to chase you down and say, take it down, right? Which... Which, which is hard for people to do. And there was a famous example of a photographer in America who'd spent years gaining the trust of these Rastafarians to do portraits of them, did this series of portraits, and then a, another artist called Richard Prince um, took this guy's photos and sort of paint, did a couple of painting dots, blue dots, and, you know, like put a blue guitar in one of the Rastafarians' hands and called that his own artwork and was selling these artworks for like two million bucks and that and you know that's that's obviously a problem right so that's 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 fair use and the productivity commission despite america actually reviewing what they're doing and saying that it's not working productivity commission suggested that we take up fair use which is stupid um and then the other big thing is safe harbor which would extend the legal rights of people like google and and therefore youtube of using, of never having to pay any money for the use of people's works on their sites. So you know, YouTube at the moment pays below commercial rate, but they do pay something for the use of Australian content on their sites. But if, if Australia took up extended safe harbor, then YouTube wouldn't have to pay any kind of um, fee for all the music that they have on their site. And people, you know, YouTube is the, the most, it's the most popular streaming site then it it carries 90% of the traffic and it pays out 10% of the royalties compared to Spotify and stuff like that. So, you know, it's shit, you know, and it means that there's less money in the pool for creators to create art and if there's less money in the pool, people take less risks, like record companies and radio take less risks of supporting, you know, fringe artists, which means that eventually all art and music and culture just becomes homogenized and boring.
0: I was under the impression that YouTube only paid if you got a certain amount of views. Is that right?
1: Uh, I'm not sure, but I think what they're meant to do is they they pay some kind of fee for any any use of your um, content on you know, so of your
0: IP or whatever yeah yeah
1: so but yeah. it's but it's way below commercial a commercial rate yeah, um, that sucks. and if and if they extended safe harbor it would it would not just be, be low, nothing. it would be nothing And it's also things like at the moment you know it's it's up to the creator so say you know when Jimmy Barnes um, didn't want whatever song it was of, of chisel to be on the um, like fucking white Australia uh, YouTube video,
0: it was yeah. it was up
1: to him to go and say you need to take this down as opposed to that that group having to ask permission in the first place to to use his music, in which case he would have said no. So they're just yeah. allowed to do it and then he has to go to the trouble of getting legal action and, you know, getting that yeah. taken down. So it's just, you know, it's just it's it seems pretty I don't know enough about it to to know why this isn't possible. But to me, it seems like it should just be the job of the government to say, all right, Google, if you want to use all this content that everybody's making, because it's not just music. It's like, you know, Google, you can, you can um, get around any paywall for all journalism and subscriptions, you know, journalism sites by Googling articles, right? Which means, mm. so, you know, Kath McCabe was saying she wrote an article for the, um, for the, for the subscription part of the telly um but because people could google that article and get around the paywall it was shared on facebook 10,000 times which which means that Jeez. you know that her paper doesn't make enough money to continue to pay journalists enough money so that they can do good work you know and that's why we're losing music journalists left right and center and you know it's, yeah, a, there's a, there's a whole it's
0: a complicated thing, it's isn't a, it's it? It's a
1: complicated thing that most people quite rightfully and quite understandably don't give a shit about, which is why people like me who do and who are affected by it need to talk up about it and also why government just needs to lead and do, do the right thing for the consumer because long term it's not going to be good for the consumer despite the fact that in the short term they're getting stuff for free, you know?
0: Yeah, well, long term the consumer's going to get shit all.
1: Exactly, and and what they get is going to be of terrible quality as well. So that that's why that's why I say vote vote one for Pike next <laughs> next you got election. my vote, mate. I'm running. Uh, <laughs> my whole policy stance is just going to be about um, grant like funding for the arts. It's going to go down Great. really really well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, if I was an Australian citizen, I would
1: vote for you. Oh, that's right. You're a Deutschland. A Deutschland. <laughs> I'm a Deutscher. Ich habe, um. ich habe eine große Schlange. <laughs> uh, wie ich besten zum Post, bitte? <laughs> yeah?
0: I love the things that people learn in German.
1: Well, I was, you know, 15, a 15-year-old boy in uh, German class. That's what you can learn. It's perfect.
0: It's perfect. I love it. Um, hey, tell me your story of your worst or strangest show experience or just the strangest thing that's happened to you because you're a musician.
1: All right. So, the the strangest thing that's happened to me on stage was it was awful, but it was it was um, it was actually on the last regional tour that I did.
0: Oh no! What um, happened?
1: So it was it had been a great tour, right? It had been really fun and really mellow and just you know it was really good. But it was a long tour, and so I was kind of you know I was kind of at the end of my tether, and I wanted to go home, but it was. We went down and played at San Remo, which is on just off Phillip Island in in Victoria. Yeah. And um, I've played there a bunch of times before, and it's always like you get a great crowd, but they're rowdy as fuck, right? Which is fine, you know. That's that's fine. I don't mind a rowdy crowd. I can kind of get into that. But this yeah. this night, for whatever reason, it was just it was mental. It was like they were all on ice or something. I don't know what was going I don't on. Know. <laughs> um, so I was tired, you know, it was the last gig of, of a four-day run and it, had been, it was the last week of a sort of six-week run, right? So I was down there and we sound-checked and the numbers were good and everything, so it was going to be a good night. I was like, okay, this is going to be great, great way to finish, finish this week. And I started playing and I was playing solo, right? So it's, you know, that can be a challenge with a rowdy crowd but I've figured out techniques of getting around that over the years. And you, Just you yelling? Know, I no, was just just kind of just kind of going with it, you know? Like not not yeah, yeah. not trying to make people shut up and just going going with the vibe and having fun and whatever. So it, it was really rowdy though and at one point I don't know what happened but the crowd this group of about 8 people just started um just in the middle of oh that's no that's right. That's what happened. So I was doing this loop pedal thing and I was doing hand claps into the loop pedal so I was going like, you know, into the loop pedal. And that started looping and the crowd started clapping along with it and I was like, cool, that's a great vibe, this is awesome. But then these like sort of eight really hammered people started going, oh, Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow oh. my mind. Hey, Mickey, hey, Mickey. And <laughs> I was like, okay, that's kind of funny, yeah, I get it. I thought they were going to do it for about 10 seconds, but it kept on going and going and going oh and going. No. So eventually I just kind of stopped the loop and I was like, all right, okay, I get it. And there was you – know, this was eight people and then the rest of the crowd was on, on my side and so they were kind of like, "Ah, oh, fuck, dude, shut up. So anyway, <laughs> there was that. So I, you know, sort of handled that and I got the, got the show going again. And then it was the last song and it was Middle of the Hill and these people had just been doing this all the way through, being really rowdy, dancing to my songs and singing all the words. So they're like – they were fans but they'd be, singing, they'd be singing arm in arm, facing away from me into the crowd, you know, like
0: uh. – Jerk fan.
1: So it was just I was kinda of getting it was getting on my nerves and so I was came to Middle of the Hills, the last song, and I started playing and then these people just like um stormed the stage, these eight people, right? And I was like, Ah, oh, fucking hell. So they started dancing behind me. I was like and I was like, all right, I'm just going to go with this. And I was like, cool, you know, come on up, guys. Let's, you know, let's make this a great finale. I love that it's
0: like not at all a dance song either.
1: No, it's just <laughs> no, not at all. And it's just me up there solo. So I start playing, but then they're all so drunk, drunk and hammered that one of, the, uh, one of the people, this lady, like stepped on my mute pedal and so muted, muted the song halfway through. And I was just like, oh fucking hell, come oh, on. No. And then she, she like stumbled and unplugged my guitar, and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so the, the song was had stopped dead, you know, halfway through. Oh, no. And I was like, oh fuck, so I like had to bend over and plug my guitar back in. Yeah. Whilst I was doing that, this guy comes up beside me and just puts his arm around me and starts going to the microphone. Oh Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind and Mickey. <laughs> And I, and at first I was kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, funny, mate. And, he, and the thing about him as well was that he was quite old and I didn't – he was hanging around with all these younger people and I was just kind of like, ah, oh, there's something about you that I just don't like. And he just kept on doing it and he's smiling oh, this weird no. kind of leer like he's so hammered. And something in me just snapped and I just turned around and I punched him in the throat. <gasps> <laughs> what? And it was awful and I feel deeply ashamed of myself. But I just like – I did a – like a an open palmed throat punch at him, <laughs> and I and I and then I pushed him into the crowd that had come onto oh the stage, and he god. and he fell over onto the ground. He was like whoa whoa whoa, and then I was all my adrenaline was up, and I was like oh god, what <laughs> what am I gonna do? I've just like punched throat punched to go on stage in front of all these people, and the security <laughs> came up on stage and like took him away, and I was like, I, how am I gonna recover from this? I was just standing, everything, the whole room was, you know, there was like 300 people there, the room was dead silent and all the people on stage were dead silent and I like went up to the back to the microphone and I was like, okay, guys, let's get back into this. (laughs) And I started playing the song again and then like sort of 30 seconds later, everybody kind of like started getting back into it and then the show finished really strong and then like as as soon as it it was over, I just like went straight backstage and I didn't come out for signing or anything like that. I thought, he, I thought he was going to probably like deck me as well. So I've never been in a fight or anything <laughs> in my life and it was very out of character. <laughs> wow,
0: um, yeah, I was going to say that is not something I could ever
1: imagine you doing. No, and I felt really, really ashamed as well because I don't like violence at all and it was, you know. Yeah. But it was just something about the guy being in my fucking personal space like that on, you know, on my stage interrupting my work and it was just something about it that just made me made my brain snap and i just yeah just hit him in the wow. throat. wow so that there is like so crazy
0: <laughs> <laughs> i would have loved it if you had like come back to the microphone after all that and just gone hey mickey you're the so <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is totally what i should have done cuz that would have been like a fuck you to him as well It'd be like yeah <laughs> You fucked with me, but now you know what you you know the only thing that I was annoyed about was just that you were singing hey Mickey and not me. Cuz that was my gag, man. That was my gag. But
0: wow, that is such a crazy story. Yeah. I can't believe that happened. Yeah, it was. I up. can't believe it wasn't in the news.
1: <laughs> well, I was like I was really worried when I got backstage, I was like, "Oh fuck, I bet somebody filmed that or something, you know? Like somebody must have filmed that." Um and nobody had, thank goodness. But and you know, I, because there was a few like really um, amazing fans there that you know, like the friends of Josh Pike, um, girl Sabi and stuff like that. You know, there were some fans there that I knew well that that had seen, and I like sort of you know, texted them and apologized. and was like, I'm sorry, you had to see that, and they were like, No, no, it's good, no. good on you. So <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was not cool. I don't, I don't feel proud of myself, and I don't condone violence of any sort, but. I don't know. I felt... I mean, I sort of did feel threatened in a way. Like, the guy had his arm on me and he was... Yeah. I just didn't like it. There was something about it that creeped me out to the point of responding instinctively and that's what happened.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. It just sounds like an out-of-body experience where you just can't quite explain why you reacted the way that you did. Yeah. It was just... It just happened. I, I don't know. There was
1: something phys- th- about the physicality of this guy and my... So close to me, I just... just needed him away from me and that was the quickest way I knew how to get him away. Yeah. Well,
0: I can't wait for someone to draw that picture, of <laughs> that story.
1: Oh, is that what you do? You get somebody to draw it? Yeah, I do. Oh, wicked. Okay, great. Someone's going to have a real
0: that. tough Josh Pike moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's good, good for my cred, good for yeah. my street cred.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for doing my little podcast, Josh. It's been so nice just to talk to you.
1: My pleasure. It's always a pleasure.
0: And um, I'm looking forward to seeing you hopefully next time less drunk than I was last time.
1: Yes, well, don't you can be as drunk as you want because you're going to get up and sing Lighthouse Song with me <laughs> in Brisbane.
0: You're going to regret this.
1: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. It's a verbal contract. <laughs> yeah, so maybe, maybe we can, you can do it and it'll, something will happen and it'll be really weird and then that can be your weirdest gig experience.
0: Yes, you can interview me. Sounds good. <laughs> hey, when does your tour start?
1: Um, Kicks off on the 28th of July And goes all the way through August
0: Great um, I'm looking forward to seeing the show I'll see you soon
1: See ya Bye bye